Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This is the first of many series devoted to specific artists that have helped shape Broadway as we know it today, both for better and for worse. It is called A Little Sondheim Music, and it is dedicated to the musicals of one Mr. Stephen Sondheim. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today is a friend of the pod, alum of the pod. I can't shake this bitch away. Each time I'm like... <laughs> Each time I'm like, we need space. She's like, no, I want to come on again and talk about things. I need the world to know that I have opinions. And I'm like, calm down. Uh, But you know what? We want to get good karma on our side. So we said yes. And we allowed her to come back on. Please welcome one Miss Allie Gordon. Wow. Thank you so much. Am I, can I ask a question? Yes. Am, Am I the most frequent guest? Yes, officially. Yes, yes. That feels so good. Can I be honest? That feels so good. <laughs> as well as should. You surpassed Suddenly Seymour, who has been on three times. And now you are, I think this is number four for you. Okay. Yeah. I really respect that. Thank yeah. you so much. You're very welcome. And also like Sutton hasn't been on in over a year. So you definitely have done the most in the last calendar year as well. I feel amazing. Can I just say yes. before this starts? We would be so good as Seymour and Audrey, except I'm Seymour and you're Audrey. <laughs> Do you feel me? 100%. I think we'd be really great, but like, I don't think I'd be a good Audrey to your Seymour. Like, I think it works one way only. That's absolutely fair. Um, I never thought of it that way. I'll do it. I'll I think we should do it. <laughs> I think we should absolutely do that. I think we should get uh, it done. Once I get my second shot, which by the by the time this episode comes out, I will have been fully vaxxed and like ready to go. So I'm I will so have, proud of you. Thank you. I will have spit all over you by the time this comes out. Also, by the time this episode comes out, we will have known the winner of this season of Drag Race for like over a month. So. Wow, that's hard to conceive because I feel like 
I feel like I was a child, a mere child when season 13 started. Yes, I, uh, my baby came to term during this season of Drag Race. Allie, enough of this bullshit. What are we talking about today? We're talking about everybody's favorite Sondheim show, probably the most recognized in the canon. Mm -hmm. Uh, When people talk about his scores and people say, what's the best score? This one frequently comes up. Mm -hmm. Um, Same thing with book and iconic performances that people know and will remember forever. Of course, we're talking about the frogs. The frogs. (laughs) The frogs. Yeah. I I have some actual behind the scenes of this. Say what? Well, I was like, do you mind if I offer some actual like behind the scenes of how we came here to this? Oh, yes. Well, so I reached out to you about this series from the get go. And I was like, you're coming back on, Uh, you know, give me a list of the ones that you'd be willing to talk about. And I knew like Sweeney would be on there. And um, I don't know what else, like forum, I I guess you brought anything. You and I were like like 11 year old Sondheim fanatics. Yes. But then you dropped a bombshell on me and you said- you said what did you say i said i'm probably the only person who'd be willing to talk about the frogs because i am because i am i used to say i was the only person in all of new york city who saw the frogs obviously that isn't true Mm. i think i might be the only 13 year old in all of new york city to have seen the frogs that's also very possible that's very possible it's very possible you might have been the youngest person to see that show but it did technically play for four months uh from the summer to the autumn of 2004. So like there, and it was a, and it's Lincoln center. So it was, you know, subscriber base. So like definitely people saw it and maybe someone took their grandchild who was like, the fuck is this? Um, <laughs> I don't know. You might be, you just might be, but yes, you are. I might be. It's, it doesn't sound all that uh, special to be like, Oh, here's a guest who's seen the show we're talking about. But in this case, it yeah, is I mean, I also, and I'm sure we will talk about this too, um, still am, but I was like a fanatic for the work of Nathan Lane as a mm. child. Like he was my favorite actor without a doubt. I watched every movie that Nathan Lane was in. I went and I saw the producers um, alone at the age of 11 because yeah. it was such a hot ticket that my parents couldn't get they were like, well, we don't like musicals, so we're not willing to spend like $500 on a stupid ticket to see a show we're not even going to like. So I remember my birthday present, I think for my 11th birthday, was a ticket to see the producers alone. That's the best kind of birthday present you could ask for. Can you imagine being an adult going to see the producers and being sat next to a lone 11-year-old? Like, can you imagine how that would feel? <laughs> yeah, well, so no, Allie, there's a difference between an 11-year-old and an 11-year-old you. That is so true. I'm sure I was scary. No, I'm sure you were perfectly polite and then the show started and you were a nightmare because you probably laughed with the energy of a thousand old men. I think that's I think that's 100% correct. I remember I remember hurting from laughing, which is also like true. The, the show is fantastic. So it's like, it's I'm not funny like, show. I'm the only person in the world who ever thought it's funny. But like, I was having time of my life. And then I remember my dad picked me up in a cab and we went home. Because <laughs> I wasn't allowed to go home by myself because I was 11. You were allowed to see the producers by yourself, but you weren't allowed to go home by yourself. Yeah, he was like, meet me over at this corner. And I did. And we got in a cab and we went home. So did thanks. you see the Did you see the frogs by yourself? 100% I saw the frogs by myself. Wow. Okay. Do you remember where you sat? I have this weird brain where I can remember exactly where I sat for every show I've ever seen. I actually, that's not, I don't have that same sense memory, but I do for the frogs because I was in the front row of the balcony of Vivian Beaumont. Otherwise known as the Loge. 
The Loge. You I uncultured the Loge. fuck. It's called <laughs> The Loge. I haven't been there in such a long time. Um, I've been. But, I, but that's like the best seat in the house is like. Oh, yeah. Well, the Beaumont, I don't think there's necessarily a bad seat, but I would say if I had to choose, I would like to be in the front center of The Loge. I definitely wasn't. I was like left or right of center. I don't think I was like right in the center, but it was the first row. It was great. Yeah. I had a great time. And so like, obviously for me, I was very excited because I got to see Nathan Lane, who I was like obsessed with. Mm-hmm. And because nobody saw the frogs, I met him after, which for me was monumental. You went to the stage door and you met him afterwards. And do you know how many people were at the stage door? Just you. Completely correct. Yeah. He, he walked out with a person who was either like a bodyguard or a driver and like saw one random child standing. You know how like the, the stage door is like technically like the parking lot? Yeah, it's right by the parking lot. I mean, this didn't even have like, I have not stage doored anything there ever since. So I assume for big things, they have like a sectioned off thing or like using rope to cordon off a hallway. Like there was nothing. I literally was just like a girl standing in front of a car. Yeah. Well, the Beaumont, because the Vivian Beaumont's part of Lincoln Center Theater, nothing that Lincoln Center Theater's ever really produced has like warranted huge crowds of screaming fangirls. So I don't know if they've ever done like a barricade for the stage door. At least any time that like I've ever Patty, gone. What about like when Patti LuPone did um, Anything Goes? I, I don't think there was much stage door culture at the time. Yeah, you're uh, probably right. I'm going to cough again. You have to edit this out. <coughs> ah! Guess what, bitch? That's staying in. <laughs> it was a good cough. You can, you can hear cough. how clear my voice sounded after. I remember um, I stage doored at the Beaumont. The first time I ever staged door to the Beaumont was the summer of 05. And I had just come back from um, stage door man at performing arts camp. And <laughs> Oh, tell me about it. Uh, you know, you tell me about it, stud. But they've never done the frogs there, I can tell you that. But I thought they did in the swimming pool. Stage door? Yeah, I, I thought actually... that was a, I thought that was a joke. No, I, okay, maybe I'm insane. But, and maybe I took a joke as serious. I thought that the last show they ever did with that stupid indoor swimming pool, or like they they made they made something where they did the frogs at the swim, indoor swimming pool, and then it got covered up, and then they, they didn't use it for years, and then it became what was it called? The Oasis, the Oasis Theater. Was no, it the, the Oasis. Yeah, the pool was used literally up until they decided to turn it into a theater. Um, so it was like it was that was a, yeah, that was that was a pool in use. Stage Door Manor had two pools: an outdoor pool and an indoor pool. And no, I don't think that the frogs was actually ever done in that pool. I think that was a joke. God and, damn it. I and, think and we'll understand the joke of that as we get into the history of the frogs. I think I believed it. I'm I sure think I believe it today. Maybe, listen, maybe they did. It definitely didn't happen while I was there. Uh, and I was there during the time where it was still a pool and then became a theater. So in those years, it was never done. But maybe- No, before. I was there. I did the first- musical in the oasis i just forgot the name of the fucking show the place. first of, first of all no you didn't oh no I bad boy was you did i'm so sorry i did the first musical in the i'm oasis. so sorry to have taken that from you live i do air. not care for your erasure <laughs> i do not see i seem to remember the mystery of edmund drew being the first musical ever performed at the oasis see i sorry, recall- the first musical ever performed by me at the oasis <laughs> that is 100 percent true see i have this in wonderful memory of doing Bat Boy, the age of 18, opening up the Oasis Theater and metaphorically pissing all over the stage and walking off and going, top that bitches. And then just, you know, no one ever did. Really? I, I, I have a strong sense memory of me just mopping the stage, just wiping your piss up. <laughs> <laughs> and see, I have a memory of you just slipping and eating it. 
just <laughs> and I was in the audience that day and rather than help you up I took your head and smothered it in there I was like how do you like that um if this seems graphic and gross wait till we get to the frogs uh which is not graphic and gross but artistically makes you clean up a bit um yeah so let's just get into this uh oh my stage door story was just that I was at um I I was out with friends that day it was the summer of 2005 and I was like I was just going on about uh lighting the piazza and everybody's like well the matinee is about to let out soon like do you want to stop by and like take some photos of the cast I was like oh no I'm sure like there are gonna be so many people there not a single person not a it, single person not a single person it was just me and like took photos with Kelly O'Hara Victoria Clark Sarah you're right Barry and they were just like oh did you like the show and I'm like I actually saw it three months ago but I was too nervous to come stage door it so here I am now getting my zhuzh it's kind of it's funny that we both have that experience in like separate weird nerdy timelines yeah well this but, like, is... i remember i was like all the like musicians were leaving mm-hmm. and they were like do you need something because i was like standing there for such a long yeah. time and i was like oh i was kind of like hoping to meet the cast and i remember like random people being like oh yeah they're coming do you know what i mean like yeah like 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 i remember like some guy coming out with like a bassoon being like oh nathan lane yeah he's coming yeah. and i was like okay and i was like nervously standing there with a pen and my thing but like none of them were even like, I don't even know if he'll have time, sweetheart. They were just like, yeah, he's coming. Yeah. And then we talked for like a while. Yeah, I think that was sort of a case where because that show was sort of, everyone thought that show was going to be a big thing and then it was sort of a big nothing. And yeah. so by that point, I'm sure they were like, oh, yeah, no one stagers it anymore. So they were like, when they finish the show and walk out the stage door, they just expect to like go home. And then every now and then there's a random person who's like, um, hi, love to get your autograph. And they're like, oh, that's right. We did a show that, a person enjoyed today. Yeah, that a child enjoyed today. Yes, specifically you, a child. So let's get into it because we've we've stalled long enough. We need to talk about the nitty gritty of what is LaFrogs. LaFrogs? LaFrogs. So LaFrogs, you know what? What is it about? What's the plot of this damn show? Okay. Uh, the plot of the show is that Dionysus, who is a half god, but is the god of wine and revelry mm-hmm. uh, and like arts and culture, I suppose. Yeah, wine um, and, and drama. And drama. I don't know. They say a million different things. Every yeah. scene, they're like, I'm the of wine and sex. You're like, okay, you got any know. any dinner table fight during a Real Housewives episode that you enjoy. You can thank Dionysus for that because there's wine I and drama. That. I feel that so profoundly. I feel like like that is the table of offering <laughs> is the is the table that teresa flipped in season one of real housewives with prostitution whores yes that mm. is that is like the sacrificial offering table that we we leave for dionysus every um, every damn day he so dionysus. Uh, he has noticed that the world is in a state of disarray uh this is supposed to take place kind of in modern times but also kind of in greek times they never really super decide on that one yeah the Um, joke is the time is now the place is ancient greece exactly which is funny i actually think that's a funny line sure um and so you know in 2004 we were talking about our when they're talking about like our incompetent leaders we're talking about like george bush and we're talking about the iraq war war um and then in greece they're talking about like you know random non sort of ahistorical just so it is first of all before we go any further down this rabbit hole it is inspired by a play 
Um, oh yeah, it's an Aristophanes play called The Frogs, which yes. does take place and actually have to do with real Greek leaders and things like that. But yes, none of be- those things are because it was it was written towards the end of the Peloponnesian War, which went on for what like twenty something years, I think. That sounds right. I yeah, can't very say long no more time. Than you. Yeah, very long time. And uh, who is it? Uh, Pericles, I think. Maybe no. Um, I'm gonna find out exactly who it was. Uh, um. Uh, yeah, Euripides. Euripides, the great uh, tragedy poet, you know, wrote many a play, had died the year before, which inspired uh, Aristophanes to write The Frogs during the Peloponnesian War, uh, which then was adapted by Berchevlov in the 40s and then again with Sondheim in the 70s, and then the version we have now with Nathan Lane. And we're back. So Dionysus, he sees the yes. state of the world. They're Thank at you. war. Actually, Pel- I didn't know all of the details yeah. there. Peloponnesian so War in ancient Greece, even though it's also still technically now. Yes. So he keeps being like, uh, we can't trust our leaders to inspire the people. Have you seen our leaders? And it's like, ha 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 ha. Yeah. It's not, It's always the same. But essentially, he wants to go to Hades to bring back a great writer to inspire the masses because he thinks that some great, that since we have done everything we can, politically speaking and war speaking, we should uh, start trying to inspire the people of the world and a great, one of our great artists should be able to do that. And then in the course of the frogs, uh, the person that Dionysus wants to bring back is George Bernard Shaw. Yes. Uh, And then eventually once he gets down there, ends up taking Shakespeare with him. Yes. Uh, because once he once he's down there and meets Shaw and loves Shaw, Shakespeare sort of shows up and then Shaw and Shakespeare like go into a clash of wit and talent and literature of who's the better poet. And Dionysus is like, well, you know, Shaw won't come up with me to uh, the living world until he gets this out of his system. He's like, so you know what? Yeah, you guys hash it out. Do do your thing, and that and so they do like a contest of you know they each can only I, I they're not allowed to come up with anything new they have to quote their previous works at each other based on a specific theme. Right, it's like a it's like a rap battle. Essentially, yes, it's a rap they're battle. Like, All right, your your theme is or whatever is this, and then yeah. it's love, yeah. it's death, it's yeah. The last one they do is change, on change, whatever it is. Yeah, but, but it's a rap battle of like you went into your archives, like they're not they're not coming up with it on the spot. They are going into their treasure trove of plays to quote from. So like Shaw does St. Joan at one point. Uh, I forget the other one that he does, but uh, what ends up happening is Shakespeare quotes Cymbeline for death. And it ends up moving Dionysus so much that he changes his mind and decides to bring Shakespeare up with him instead of Shaw. Yes. uh, Change the masses. And in all of this is Dionysus's slave, Xanthius, who, or Xanthysus. Xanthus. No, it's Xanthius. Xanthius. I think Xanthius. you're thinking of Kimmy Schmidt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I am. Oh. I think you're thinking of Xanthippe. <laughs> Xanthippe, yes. That's the name of the girl in Kimmy Schmidt. Xanthippe. Um, yeah, and there's like a whole bunch of other stuff that is added, I'm pretty sure, to this version. Like Dionysus had a wife that's died and yes. he sees her again in Hades. And I did. I looked up the list of the original songs that were written in the 70s for mm-hmm. Yale and... Uh, and um, it's not a huge list. It's like invocation and instructions for the audience. The finale is the same. Uh, that like Evoe, the like hymn to Dionysus. Yeah. There, and then like the song of the frogs. But like almost anything else that you could like really hum from this score is new. Yeah. Well, so yeah, a lot of the score for this version is new. Plus on top of that, 
I'm again, I think that it's just like a lot of bits were added because the original version was 90 minutes and then got stretched out to two and a half hours for Broadway. So we talked about the plot for a big for a bit. Let me go into the sort of the history of how we got here, why we have what we have here, and then we'll talk more about the show itself. So as we'd mentioned, uh, Aristophanes wrote this play, The Frogs, back in his good old days of ancient Greece. And Bert Shevlov, who was one of the book writers for A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, when he was a supervisor for the Yale Dramatic Association in the late 30s and early 40s, uh, directed and devised an adaptation of The Frogs. And the whole like to do was it was at, it was in the Yale swimming pool because there's a the whole way that Dionysus gets to Hades, which is, you know, the uh, underworld and the you know land of the dead is he because he doesn't want to kill himself in order to get there. So he finds out the only way he can do that is that he has to uh, travel by boat across the lake, which is, you know, how a lot of people travel through Hades. And so for that scene, anytime that he's in the boat, when they did this in the 40s, they did it in the Yale swimming pool, which is one of those like, oh, that's really clever. But there's a pool for the rest of the show that's totally unused. And then in the 70s, what ended up happening was uh, Sondheim was helping out with some charity event that the person who was like uh, organizing the whole thing was like, oh, I decided to like string a couple of songs together with a loose plot and that's going to be like the performance for this benefit. And Sondheim's like, you don't know what you're doing. This is going to be <laughs> terrible, but I need, it's like, I, I would like this benefit to go well. So he called up Bert Shevlov. He's like, hey, can you come in unpaid? for like two weeks and make this thing make sense and be entertaining. And Shevlov's like, sure, no problem. And sometimes like, I knew when I did that, I was uh, owing him a favor at some point. And then like a year later, 1973, so sometimes done Company and Follies and Night Music at this point, Shevlov's like, hey, so Yale would like me to do the Frogs again for Yale Repertory uh, Theater, which I don't know if they still do this, but at the time it basically was just like a platform for their drama students to do shows pretty much unpaid and then charge money for it. Uh, I don't know if they still do that, but that was what it was at the time. They're like, oh yes, come see all the classics in our repertory theater. And we are making hand over fist because we are not paying anybody because they're all technically students. Wow. I didn't know that. Um, I mean, I might be uh, over exaggerating it a bit, but that was definitely a thing. And it was, and happens with this but so Shevlov's like they would like me to do the frogs again and I would like you to write some songs for it and we're going to do it in the pool again and the man who was the head of Yale drama rep was Robert Brewstein who was a critic and a failed playwright in his own way and apparently had been very public about not liking Sondheim's work he wrote reviews for the New Republic and Sondheim's like um I don't think you want me Brewstein doesn't like my work and Shevlov's like, no, I spoke with Brewstein and he likes your, and he's willing to let you do it. And sometimes like, well, that sounds a little two-faced, but okay. And he's sort of writing this at the same time that Hal Prince is calling in his favor and being like, hey, can you write new lyrics for this revival of Candide that I'm doing in Chelsea? Uh, which I think is actually very important because it uh, influences some of the lyric writing that he does for the frogs, which is like very, play very playful, very like light and sort of farcical, especially with the opening song. I'm like, it makes sense that he wrote this while writing lyrics for Candide. And so Sondheim basically said, like, I should have known that there was trouble afoot because when I met with Brewstein, he was very condescending and again, very two-faced. 
But I sort of plot ahead because I owed Shevlov the favor and I thought, hey, this will be fun, like low stakes. We're writing a 90 minute musical for a college for Yale and no one's we're writing a 90 minute musical for Meryl Streep, <laughs> Meryl Streep and Sigourney Weaver. So true. Yeah. And he's like, you know, it's so low stakes. It's just students. He's like, it's, it'll be a learning experience for everybody and no one of importance is going to come see it. It'll just be whatever. But come 1974, when this is coming to be, and Candide is now opened in New York and is a big hit, they're in rehearsals and everything's going smoothly. And then they get to what's supposed to be their tech rehearsals. And Robert Brewstein has not fireproofed any of the sets that are uh, going to be in the gymnasium with the swimming pool. And the fire department uh, in New Haven gets wind of this and they say, okay, so you have to shut everything down and fireproof all of your sets. Otherwise we're shutting the whole thing down. Yep. So that cuts into their tech rehearsals and Sondheim and Shevlov are like, hey, can we push back the opening four days so we can like, you know, have a dress rehearsal. We're basically going to be teching up to the last minute. And Robert Brewstein's like, no, we can't because we sold all the tickets. And also because I might've invited critics from New York to come to opening night. Oopsie, sorry about it. What? Yep. This is so weird. I don't know any of these stories. Oh, it's all in Finishing the is Hat, Henny. Okay, I remember Finishing the Hat, but I read it like voraciously as a, what, 17 yeah. year old or whatever well, when it came out and like never again. It's only, the the frog section of Finishing the Hat is worth it just for like the story leading up to it. He doesn't really have any notes on the lyrics for it. And he's yeah. he says as much towards the end. He's like, sorry that I don't have many notes on these lyrics. Uh, I was checking up until opening. But he's also like, this show was sort of a big nothing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, like it was meant to be fun, uh, to do and it really wasn't fun to do until we had finally opened and like were able to sort of run it and and fix whatever we needed to fix and then he's like then doing the revisal wasn't really all that fun uh but we'll get to that in a second but so basically what happened was like Sondheim and Shevlov realized that Robert Brewstein was trying to turn Yale drama into like a scouting area for Broadway stuff like he mm-hmm. wanted this thing to go to Broadway he wanted Yale to be like the new place that people went to to see like oh what's Yale gonna do in the way that Diane Paul's kind of turned ART yep, totally. into an out-of-town tryout spot um that's what Bruce Dean was trying to do with Yale and Sondheim has the harshest of words to say to him, uh, about him in finishing the hat with this but he also has like very harsh words about academia in general he's like I think it's very important that artists go to school for these things i just wish that the teachers weren't like failed artists themselves Woo! he said what he said he said what he said and he meant what he said because a sondheim is certain 100 percent mm-hmm that's cut that what's, out you that's have to what, cut that out i'm no i'm keeping it you have to cut it out no I, well honestly i actually said something similar to that in the follies episode oh no i know i know so it just goes to show you and i are both the exact same yeah and we both immediately regretted it and we're like cut that out cut that out cut <laughs> it's that too out. late now maybe we should do like a true west style little shop where we flip-flop with audrey and seymour every that's other fun. night i think that's really fun yeah that's the only way you'll be audrey and i'll be audrey is that like the audience isn't forced to see it eight times a week that's correct, because otherwise I will never play that role. No. I think I have some, I have some interesting things to say. <laughs> <laughs> About Audrey? I have some interesting things to say. Yeah, I think I think you can do some fun things with that role. I have some interesting things to say. About ah, that role. So basically <laughs> that's the end of the Frogs for a very long time. It gets done like randomly here and there regionally. Um, and only the opening number is ever really used in anything of note in terms of like Sondheim reviews or... Uh, any kind of like concerts that people do of Sondheim works. Right. And also the opening number, and please tell me if I'm wrong because I know you'll know. Mm -hmm. Wasn't it a draft of something that got scrapped for forum? Yes. The first half of the opening number 
was a first attempt at an opening number for Forum. Which got scrapped real quick. And then there was Love is in the Air, which also got scrapped. And then Comedy Tonight. Yes. Okay. Cool. Birch Abbott, who directed Forum, was like, I can't hum this song you wrote, Steve. And the original song was supposed to be about like how what you're going to see is like a body show. And so he wrote Love is in the Air. And Abbott's like, I can hum it. I love it. And then they go out of town and it bombs. And Robbins comes in and he's like, your opening number's all wrong. You're telling people this is going to be like a Kaufman and Hart play. It's not. Yes. Um, and or like a Noel Coward show and you need and like you need a song that's going to tell you that this is going to be a romp and Sondheim's like I wrote it and Abbott said he couldn't hum it and Robbins goes okay dick write one <laughs> just he write can, another one like write one he can hum that does what you're supposed to do um which I love it's because Sondheim's like I did that and Robbins like well do it again yeah well do it better this time yeah maybe step up to the plate gay <laughs> I hope someone said that once to Sondheim in his career. Step up to the plate, you queer. Yeah, I actually think they said that during the uh, out-of-town tryouts for Passion. Jokes on you, there was no out-of-town tryout for Passion. <laughs> That's why it's funny, okay? Fuck you. <laughs> it was during workshops and everybody was like, Steve, listen, we see what you're trying to do, but maybe make it better, you faggot. But didn't we just talk about how we both, how now older, are like, you know what? Passion is really great. I don't think it's great, but I think there's a lot more to it than I originally thought. Another story that I have about being a child out of place was I once met Donna Murphy when I was like, I'm going to say like 12. Mm -hmm. And um, I very seriously told her that I loved her as Fosca in Passion. And she Mm -hmm. laughed. And then she went, oh, you're being serious. And I was like, yeah, I really, (laughs) I really am. (laughs) She's not used to hearing that very often. I don't know if I- Especially not from like a a child who purports as a like 40 year old woman. I don't know if I mentioned this on the passion episode. It's been so long since I recorded it, but my grandmother, Nancy Tickton, my mom's mom, hated passion so much when it came out that she for years had a dislike for anyone involved with it. Wild. Because like we, I remember her seeing Kiss Me Kate and being like, I mean, Brian Stokes Mitchell is wonderful, but like Maren Maisie, she's not really doing much. And I'm like, you just don't like her because you didn't like Passion. Like she's That's great wild. in the show. And then like for years wouldn't say that she liked Donna Murphy. I think finally, finally she said that she liked Donna in like Follies at Encores, which was like 13 years later. That's it took, wild. It's so wild. It took her forever. She had such a grudge about it. Um, but you know what she didn't see? Or maybe she did because she worked at Lincoln Center at the time. The Frogs. <laughs> well, um, nobody did except for me. Well, so what ends up happening is apparently like Nathan Lane gets a copy of the script in the late 70s. Um, but also, yes, we mentioned earlier in the ensemble for the Frogs at Yale in 1974 are a young Meryl Streep, Sigourney Weaver and Christopher Durang. They also include the Yale swimming team as the frogs that are in the uh, lake. And it's you know, many different departments came together to do this thing. And Including such famous swimmers as can you can you imagine? If we were just like some names you might recognize. <laughs> yes. Robert Herschelberger. Yeah. Joseph Levinson. You're so yeah. good at first names and you're so bad at last names. Yeah. Well, it's easier to think of first names is than to make up last names. That's true. When I was still doing improv really like really a lot, I had a list of like go-to first names and last names. So I never got like put on the spot and said like dick face. <laughs> Dick. Dick. and now they're all gone richard face richard face that's so funny that's a funny joke yeah I think now that's so. good <laughs> i'm fucking funny i'm smart i am funny i'm a writer sometimes Anywho. i have some interesting things to say about the role 
I've got I'm thinking that. Oh my god, we've been recording for so long and we've mentioned the frog so little. So honestly, that's what this episode is. Yeah, what is there to say about the frog? Yeah, so Nathan Lane gets a script of it and he becomes like weirdly enamored with the show for all of the 80s and early 90s. And then he does a concert of it at the Library of Congress with Brian Stokes Mitchell. And he basically comes to Sondheim and he's like, I would like to do a musical of this. If we can work on this with Susan Stroman and like get this thing up to snuff for like a Broadway stage, would you write some songs? And Sondheim basically is like, I guess. And Lincoln Center signs up for it. And basically uh, this is like three years after the producers and it's right after the Assassin's Revival comes out. Assassin's comes out in April and this starts previews in late June at Lincoln Center Theater. And I remember when it was announced for the 2004, 2005 season, everyone was like, oh, this might be like the show of the season. Cause you have, it's technically speaking a new Sondheim score. Yes, half of it was written in the 1970s, but he's written like seven new songs. Nathan Lane's doing the book based off of a book that people already enjoyed. Susan Strom is directing and choreographing it. Lincoln Center's producing it. Like this is gonna be good. And it opened on July 22nd of 2004. And we'll get into the responses in a bit. Ooh. But yeah. Here's uh, the thing. I, I, I want to say like, um, as much as I keep being like, it's nothing. I actually really don't think it's bad. Like it's, it's legitimately pretty funny in a lot of places. Um, mm. It is like tonally confused as yeah. like it's, as its biggest critique. And also like, it has like a really fun first act. And unfortunately when it gets to the second act, it kind of, we're, we're just like, we got to find Shaw. And like, that becomes like the entirety of the second act. And that's a little sad mm-hmm. and like not much else happens, but um, it's funny. It has its moments. It, Nathan Lane has written, Nathan Lane wrote a lot of good jokes. Yeah. Um, I there's also I found audio of the Yale production on YouTube, which I think I sent you. It's not great yes, audio did. because it's I so- listened to a little because yeah. I was sort of having trouble staying focused with yeah. such bad. It's audio. also very echoey, so it's hard sometimes to make up all the words. But what I discovered this morning while I was sort of preparing for recording today was a uh, an album that Nathan Lane and Brian Stokes Mitchell recorded in like 2000, 2001 of the frogs of like the score mm-hmm. as it was written originally. And I liked listening to that so much more than I liked listening to the 2004 Broadway recording because it's much more like, here's the opening song. Everything first of all is done in this style of ancient Greek theater, which is that there's a chorus that sings and they basically are representative of all the characters, uh, you know, no character in the actual show itself sings once the show begins. I'm almost positive. It's there's a chorus that sings um, about the action mm-hmm. in the original version of the frogs. So that, that's why I like the opening segment called Prologus. Uh, and then they have um, Hymnus and, and all these other things, which are versions of songs that were done in ancient Greek uh, drama. And then when it was done for Broadway, Nathan Lane's like, we're making this a much more traditional musical. So the characters need to be able to sing. And so Sondheim wrote all these character songs for the show. And those are the songs I like the least. Yeah. The group numbers are really fun, except for honestly, unfortunately, I I really like don't like the frogs, the title song. What I like is I like how it begins. And then when it gets to where the frogs. Yeah. I don't like that. I don't like it either. Sorry, Sondheim. Frogs, we're the frogs, we're the adorable frogs. Frogs, 
hoity-toity intellectuals, not your hippie-hippie homosexuals, just your easy-going, simple, warm-hearted, cold-blooded frogs of the pond. I honestly, like, don't know how many Sondheim songs I've ever, like, go out of my way to be like, I don't like that. But I really don't like the frogs. And I, like, when I was watching the video recording of it mm-hmm. recently, I was like, I'm going to watch the whole number and I'm not going to skip. But there were, like, multiple times where I was like, bitch, stop. Your, your little fingers inching towards the computer to skip ahead. I just don't like it. Um, oh. And also, like, the other thing about them expanding it into a two-hour show is, like, uh, in the original Greek script of the Aristophanes thing like the frogs still are meant to represent one thing which is like people who resent and and withstand uh, like uh people who are complacent I believe withstand is not the right word it's people who reject change essentially Mm -hmm. uh and so like you'd think that it's going to be a bigger struggle or it's going to be a bigger metaphor for like you know these artists trying to get out there and uh, bring other artists back to change the world while there's like a you get met with like a complacent crowd or like an audience who's not ready to hear what you want to like that's kind of what you think it's going to be and uh-huh. it isn't they like encounter the frogs at the end of act one and at the end at the beginning of act two everything's okay and like that's kind of it for the frogs yeah it's it's odd. so as i said before the original musical that Shevlov did with Sondheim was 90 minutes and they turned it into a two and a half hour two act the first act is like 45 minutes it is short yeah it's fun it flies by I like it there's 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 there are two songs I'm like simply snip snip uh <laughs> but that said sure yeah it does it does go by a lot quicker act two my god does it drag it's but just also, too long and, and, and as there's you, not, not a lot happens like they're like we gotta yeah. find the guy we found the guy the guy's talking the other guy's talking. Let's well, have a more structured talking. You just said talking. you just said we need to find the guy. We found the guy, honey. That is forty minutes of Act Two because before they find the guy, there are like little hiccups along the way, but they're not even really hiccups. It's like they're on the boat. They get off the boat. They there's a, a mixed up identity situation that goes on for ten minutes which doesn't amount to anything. And then there's like an orgy that happens that they end up not partaking in, but almost partake in. And then that doesn't happen. And then they like meet Pluto and he's like, oh yeah, let me tell you how amazing Hades is. And then it's still like another 15 minutes till we finally see Shaw. Right. And then I'm saying when they see, even when they see Shaw, you're like this guy, oh, other guy, they're fighting. And then somebody's like, wait, stop fighting and start fighting in a more structured way. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh no. And then that goes on for a while. Yeah. Um, that's fair, a shame. The, the, the rap battle essentially comes from the play itself. But again, these things are much more entertaining when they're sort of streamlined and it's sort of a condensed piece when it's stretched out. And again, as you mentioned earlier, this version, the most recent version, has such tonal issues because it's trying to be a big romp for the first half. And then once it gets to the second half, it decides to take itself much more seriously. It's still like yeah. has a lot of high, you know, uh, sorry, I should say low humor to it, but it ends in such like, I don't want to say somber, but very like pensive state. Yes. It's very serious. And it also ends with like a direct address to the audience. Like mm-hmm. it kind of breaks the fourth wall and like, they bring Shakespeare back and, and Dionysus is like, go on Shakespeare, inspire them. And he like looks at you and is mm-hmm. like, what's up? Okay, let me tell you what I'm about to say. Yeah. Um, and that's also weird because like um, it doesn't, again, feel like the same thing of like lovers divided, get read. You know, I mean, yeah. show. but like that's sort of what the opening sets up of sort of just being like 
oh, bless our silly little show. We're silly little actors. Don't cough. Don't do stuff. And then they're like, and also I'm going to look you directly in the eyes and like appeal to you to like change the world. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry. I thought we were still doing like, don't fart. Yeah. Well, so that, that's that's what's so weird is the opening number. I love the opening number. It's, Me too. It's my favorite song in the show. And there's a reason why it's done in reviews all the time because it's such a fun way to start something. And it's also like, it is Sondheim at his most like, frat boy e, but being Sondheim he can't really go full-blown like South Park but like this is his version of South Park yeah and it's, it's like low it's truly like low humor with brains and yeah. it's very funny do not intrude please when someone's nude please she's there for mood please and mustn't be embraced if we are crude please don't come unglued please let's not be too straight laced the author's reputation wasn't based on taste so please don't fart there's very little air in this is art and if you feel offended and but then to use that exact same song later and change the tempo and the words to make it seem more like meaningful it literally is like opening forum with uh, tragedy tomorrow comedy tonight and the ending with tragedy yes tomorrow. that's exactly right it's like what the fuck are we doing here yeah. it's so odd please don't not agreeing with me just because I'm a god. Have some respect for Aristophanes and please don't nod. Don't just shrug. Content to be a conscientious slug. It's fine to feel contented, safe and snug, but it's hard to explain because in a way the show for the first half like kind of plays up the idea of people who think that art can save the world of like oh okay look at these people and then the second half it's like no really right exactly yeah. like and I don't feel like they ever make a statement on like whether or not it is true that art can change the world like there's no like they don't show it ever they don't show it and also like with with an I mean this is the problem of like Broadway just like in general sorry mm -hmm. this is gonna sound very like this is gonna sound like an anti-capitalist rant and I don't necessarily mean it this way entirely but it's like a little bit though. Shakespeare coming and look. Shakespeare coming and looking at you in the eye. The person st sitting there in the fourth row center of the Vivian Beaumont Theater. You probably don't need to hear or be convinced of the thing that like you're trying to be convinced of, which is that like art is important and we should be like questioning our leaders. It's like these are probably the richest, most liberal people potentially in the country. Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? And if not, not if, if not the entire audience, the preponderance of the audience. Yeah. Or the people who are the Lincoln Center subscribers. Like nobody needs to be told, like if only Shakespeare was back, he'd have something to say. Like they're the people sharing memes on Facebook that are like the orange Cheeto did it again. It's like they, they're not the people who need to hear it anyway. So it's like- You're not convincing anyone. They are already on your side. They're so on your side. And so like the show doesn't even take a stance on whether or not art can change the world. It just mm -hmm. kind of implies that it can because you're listening to it and you're a liberal mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're like, I guess I was moved. Thank you. Well, um, and so it's like, it's not persuasive. The timing of the show is very important because when, so as I said, the original Aristophanes frogs came out during the Peloponnesian War and it was about how like everyone become complacent because the war had gone on for so long and everyone basically was like yeah I guess like this is life now and Euripides had just died and so that's what made him write the play because in 
the musical version, it's Shaw and Shakespeare that have the rap battle and and Dionysus wants to bring Shaw back. In the play, in the original original play, he goes down to get Euripides because he's like, we just lost one of our greatest artists, like bring him back. And then only for him to get down there. And uh, I believe it's uh, Aeschylus. I who, don't remember. Aeschylus, I believe, who, come, who he ends up bringing back up with him. And then uh, there's a joke about how like, Oh, yeah, uh, have Sophocles take uh, his place because at the time that the play, The Frogs opened, Sophocles had like just died and he, they couldn't really make enough changes to make one of the characters Sophocles instead. So they're like, oh, we'll sprinkle in some jokes about Sophocles being dead. So, yeah, so like Euripides had been dead for about a year at that point. And they're like, oh, okay, so like he's the big character. And they're like, are they not going to mention how Sophocles died literally a month ago? And then it's like, <laughs> oh, so while I'm leaving Hades, have Sophocles take my place at the banquet table. And everyone's like, ha, 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 he's been dead for a month. That's good. Uh, yeah. Isn't it nice to know that people have always been funny? Yeah. I know. Sure. Like, I really mean that seriously. Like, I'm like, isn't it nice that, like, to know that no matter how different, like, society is, there's always been somebody who's like, uh, how about this zinger? Everyone was like, oh, yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, well, it's the it's the earliest example I can think of of, of meta humor where it's 12,000 people who all get the joke because it's like on its own, it's not a funny joke. It's a name drop joke that 12,000 people understand. It's the yeah. equivalent of Legally Blonde making a JetBlue joke. And we're like, Completely. we get it. We've all done we're JetBlue. Like, we love it. JetBlue. We flew here on JetBlue. Yeah, we um, do, honey. I, I think that's very funny. Yeah. Um, no, wait, what was I going to say? I don't remember. No, so going back to my thing, because I was in the middle of a statement and then you interrupted Sorry. me with your- With my own statement. With your own so many thoughts. So what happened was, was Nathan Lane, we were sort of at the height of the uh, Iraq war with Bush when Nathan Lane wanted to adapt the frogs even more so. Right. And I, and I do think that the analogy stands. Like if that really was Nathan Lane's like, primary reason for wanting to adapt it was to be like this is all still true we are complacent wars can yeah. go on forever and it just becomes background noise like i don't think he's wrong no it's 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 absolutely justified and i think that there's something there but again because there are moments when he like gets very earnest and very serious and then they make a, a weed joke and right. i'm like it's not so much that you have to pick a lane you can blend these two things together but it doesn't blend it is very much uh contrasting flavors it is literally having a piece of cake and then following it up with steak and you're like what that sounds good so you i'm sorry no you would have <laughs> you would have a full-blown slice of cake from the milk bar and follow it up not even like an hour later like two minutes later with a filet mignon no you're no i would not exactly is that is that it is tonal dissonance and like the moments that are really funny are really funny mm -hmm. but it's just they they are like immediately followed up with something that's not funny yeah because it's like it's only that like shows that are funny can't be serious or shows that are serious can't be funny like that's not the point it's just that like it's the the pendulum swings too far too fast yes and you're not totally meant totally like sure which one you're supposed to feel and ditto to like, I just don't think this show takes a strong enough stance on what its opinion is about mm -hmm. art, about idealism, about artists, about uh, death. Like it doesn't take like a super strong stance on any of them. They're just sort of like uh, incremental in the plot. They're just like little like bits and pieces. You know what I just had this thought of? This, sh this show, as it is currently written with the Nathan Lane text, reminds me of any Instagram post you see from someone where the 
caption is like this long story of like, I've been really struggling with depression and we need to normalize uh, mental health and getting therapy and uh, having the right prescriptions and we shouldn't be afraid of science and all these things. And the picture is them like half naked in the woods, like with their butthole showing. And you're like, I'm sorry, what am I supposed to be getting from this? Because I am fully looking at your butthole. Yes, like you wrote me this whole thing. And on top of that, it's to people who follow them who are most likely in their lives. And I'm like, are you changing any minds with this? I don't think anyone who's seeing this necessarily disagrees with you. Um, on the off chance that like, you also then put a hashtag that maybe would, like, would go to a MAGA person and they'd be like, well, no, fuck mental health. You're either crazy or you're not. Right. And, it's and like, then- I, I wonder, like, I do wonder if the original text has like a stronger opinion about like, what happens when you bring back a great artist? Like, do they make change or does it stay complacent? Well, because like this, this show doesn't. Really yeah. Say. So I don't, I have not read the original text. I've only read up on it. Uh, I will find I it. read it in college, like forever ago mm-hmm. because I knew the musical and I had to write a paper comparing some stuff. And I was like, this will be easy because I've seen the musical. But even then it is still in one ear and out the other. Speaking of college and musicals, how much do you like Fiorello, Allie? Oh my God, I hate Fiorello so much. I know you do. And you know what? I feel so justified now because like every time somebody was like, you should sing I Love a Cop. And I was like, I don't think so. Now it's like, song. hey, fuck you. Now I'll, no one will ever sing that song. Ever. No one ever needs to sing that song. First of no all- No one ever will. And yeah. I've been right since the beginning. You have I was been... there in 1959 or whatever being like, guys, don't do it. <laughs> don't you do it. I love how people drag Carousel for being like, it glorifies wife beating. I'm like, well, it's a tragedy and it doesn't. And then you have Fiorello where it's literally a punchline about like a romantic song. And I'm like, I'm sorry, why haven't we canceled this Pulitzer Prize winner? I don't here. know. It's a show that has not aged well, but people keep, keep trying to like convince me it's aged just fine. And it's like, it like, not really. Marry the Very Next Man is also like a song that like won't, that like doesn't stand on its own two feet. And also like all the stuff that's like sort of glorifying like city hall and politics. And it's like, none of this is good. Politics. None of this is good. It's crazy to me that that's like the Pulitzer Prize winner of the Bach and Harnick catalog where- I know. And like, I, I think I think Fiddler is Pulitzer Prize worthy. I think, well, Fiddler, I don't think counts because it has to be about American stories. Although, no, that's not true because Diary, Diary of Anne Frank won. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what the, uh, what it has to be about. What, like, the actual credentials have to be. It but has my, to be about Mac and Mabel. <laughs> it has to be about things other than the frogs. But so, okay. First of all, what's your favorite song on the show? Is it, is it the opening? I mean, the opening is a pretty strong fucking contender. Yeah, um, I love it very much. It does begin with the whole like glory. It, it plays up your expectations because you hear it's a musical of a Greek, ancient Greek comedy. And so it begins with this whole like, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it sounds very old school and very like pretentious. The fanfare? The fanfare, the, yes, very pretentious. Yes. And then, then it goes into like quirky musical theater. And they do the whole like some do's and don'ts. And I just think it's so funny. I think the rhymes are clever. I think the whole thing makes sense. And it is one of the rare Sondheim show, uh, songs where it works out of context as well as it works in context. Totally. Yeah. Um, one little tidbit that I wanted to share mm-hmm. is, um, have you ever listened to Comedy Bang Bang? No. They used to do a bit. I don't think they do it anymore. Where, let me, hold on, I think I wrote it down. 
Yes. Okay. They might still do it. The bit was called Would You Rather, and it truly was just a Would You Rather game. Uh huh. But Scott Ackerman, every time he would start the game, would play the entirety of that fanfare. That's like probably 35 to 40 seconds long. Um, it's over a minute long. Great. So the bit was that if you tried to interrupt him or stop the fanfare from mm-hmm. going, he'd be like, shh, 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 you're being rude. You're being really rude. <laughs> like <laughs> This happened like so many times. He'd get like multiple guests on who'd like done it a million times mm-hmm. because he'd known they'd done it before. He would like plan to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is uh, linked in my mind with that comedy bang bang bit that I think is really funny. I guess that's part of the legacy of the frogs then. Truly, if you, if you were asking like what the legacy of the frogs is, it is that it bled into a really stupid bit on the comedy bang bang podcast um what's another song in this show that you like one that's a, one of the newer songs are there any because honestly there oh, really aren't any for me I, I i like the i like the original one the evoe the like him to dionysus yes uh, it also makes sense that it was written like directly after company because parts of it sound exactly like company yeah it's because that's the song that's the song that's essentially the orgy right or the yes. Dionysians are saying like we hail Dionysus and yes. we drink the wine and all this stuff and it's very um you know what it reminds me of it reminds me a lot of like the Bobby the uh the um disembodied voices in company the Bobby bah, 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 that's what it reminds me of yeah there's very, parts in the very... middle that become like the da- the dance-ish section that sound mm-hmm. like my good and crazy people my friends it like sounds yeah. exactly like company but yeah. I like it it's very um, siren-like. I enjoy it. What do but- I like of the new stuff? Um, I said I like Dress Big. I took, I took notes when I was watching it. Um, so you, dress- okay, you texted me about this, Dress Big. Yeah, Dress um, Big has a, has a bit from the birdcage directly lifted. What's the bit? So Dress he's Big- te- like, He's like teaching him how to walk, and he's basically being like too fossy, too this. And it's like, yeah. oh, this is like straight up, just like right from I Pierce the Toast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly it. Dress Big is a song where when Dionysus goes to his half-brother Heracles and he's like, you've been to Hades and came back, like, any advice? And basically he's like, be manly, dress big. So he sings a song called Dress Big and the point of the song is by the end of it, he's like, oh, I'll give you one of my lion furs and you'll pretend to be me. You don't walk, you stride. You don't amble, you don't sidle. You're a mind them, you're an idol. Well, you don't expect me to carry that gigantic club around, do you? What kind of a god are you? The kind with lower back problems. And don't say lower back problems. Say, I have a spine of steel. You don't talk, you growl. You don't matter thing, you roar up. It's a matters of decorum, ignorum. You gotta act big and loud and rough. Uh, but the entire song is him being like, try this on, try that on, act like this, walk like this. Walk like um, this, don't do this with your hands. Yeah. I mean, look, is it a great song? Put it this way. When I was writing in my notes what I thought I sounded like, I said I thought that it sounded like... Um, no Life from Sunday the Park with George, which is nobody's favorite song from Sunday. So for me to be like, I liked this song. You know what it reminded me of? No Life. Mm. It's, it's crazy. But I did like it. I think it's funny. I like the parts of the show that feel the most like forum, like stupid. Sure. You know what I mean? It's my issue with this song and a lot of the new stuff is that I feel like there's no real structure to it. There's no beginning, middle, and end. It just sort of feels like it continues and continues and then just ends. Yeah, that song goes on for a really long time. And yeah. ditto to I Love to Travel, which I actually, again, don't think is a bad song at all. It just like is too, too, too long. It's just a very long it is song. Long. Well, and I Love to Travel originally was just the chorus when it was written in the 70s. It was the like, yeah. 
flop, travel, travel, all that. that part's good too, but I, I, I got, I still like the, like, I love to travel. Yeah. I still like it. It's I just cute. want it it's, to be shorter. Yeah. Well, it's also a dichotomy of those two where it's like the chorus is sounding like a different genre than the bulk of the song itself, which I, maybe that's supposed to be the joke similar to the opening of like this heavy Greek yeah. music singing and See, then ba da ba as a concept, I don't dislike that. That like the Greek chorus is the one that's going to like keep the show on track, um, uh, tonally speaking. Like, don't forget this is a serious show, and that like our protagonists skew contemporary and body, and like can't like oh we can't contain them. They're so wild. Like I don't mind that. I like I I think conceptually that still could kind of work. And I also think that like there's a lot of funny dialogue but for the uh-huh. two of them. They he they just like they both got good jokes and they both sure. deliver them really well. So that's why like when you're seeing the show, I I can't imagine being like I'm having an actively bad time. I just don't think it's a memorable show. I love to travel, don't you? I love a change of pace, I love a change of space, I love to see a place that's absolutely new. Sweat. I love to travel, um, don't you? Limp, of course you do. I love to travel, it's true. I love a change of venue. Dress big. You're guys, you're just coming for me for being I like saying that I like this song. No, like what you like, girl. I'm I'm I mean genuinely... I like it better than Ariadne. Okay, great. Fantastic. I'm so glad you brought this up because in every single review that I read, and then on top of this, um, the website that I've had to write cast album reviews for, I was reading the reviews for the Frogs albums and it was my editor who reviewed them and he really likes it. Um, especially he likes the new one. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And he talks about Ariadne and a couple of other reviewers talked about Ariadne. And they're like, this should be, you know, a laugh in the face of to anyone who says that Sondheim can't write an emotional song, can't write a beautiful love song. And I'm like, I was it's listening to it. It's not very good. It's not. Um, what it reminded me of, just in terms of execution. So basically, I agree with you in terms of concept for I Love to Travel, of like, also, I love how we were talking about I Love to Travel, and then my brain went back to Dress Big, because in my mind, they're all They're the all same. the same song. They're all, they're all No Life from Sunday Night Park. With they're Tony. all No Life. Well, it's all these songs where I'm like, in I like again in concept I'm totally on board. The execution doesn't do it for me, and it's something that I've started to find with Sondheim in the last part of his writing career. And you mm-hmm. see it a lot with Roadshow. The, this these songs that kind of feel like nothing, and almost feels like he's leaning into the narrative that he's not writing melodic songs in his career. Because people, sure. people are like, oh, he doesn't write hummable stuff. I'm like, you tell me that you can't hum. Uh, another hundred people or like you yeah can't. or even like move on or like yeah like crazy being yeah, alive like beautiful songs like amazing amazing melodies uh and there are some things in those shows where i'm like yeah okay i get that but that's not supposed to be the hummable song like you're not supposed to walk out of the theater of night music and go like perpetual anticipation that's a bop <laughs> exactly although can i say it is a bop I, I love it. No, it's I like love a, it very a much. Minute and eleven seconds, and you're like, okay, give me it. It's but it's but it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It's, yes. you know, it's a scenic transition moment. It's good, but like you know, also moments of passion. I'm like, yeah, no, I absolutely understand. What, like, I read is not you walking out of the theater being like, that's going to be a radio hit. Totally. Um, but it still like kind of works. But I I get it. It's like he's starting to lean into that era, and then with Roadshow and with the Frogs, it's like. I don't know. It's almost as if like the lyrics are still there. He still has the well for the lyrics, but the music, it's like, it's almost as if he has the nugget 
in his brain and he just can't expand upon it. Um, and that's what I see with something like Ariadne. So what I wrote in my notes, and it's such a, um, I realized it's sort of an asshole thing to say because it's I'm now coming for two things. With this <laughs> but I said, it reminds me of the score to Amelie in the sense that I don't think the song itself is any good, but the accompaniment is lovely. That, okay, I agree with that. I'm not going to come for Amelie as hard as you, but I think that that is a, uh, a fair criticism of both songs slash scores. So, and I had to write a review for the cast album for Amelie after having seen it on Broadway. And I was like, okay, well that happened. And <laughs> what I realized with Amelie is like a song will start and I'm like, oh, maybe this song's better than I remembered it. Cause like the intro is always so wonderful. Yes. And then the song begins and I'm like, it's not actively awful, but I'm like, I, I'm kind of forgetting about it the moment it's happening. And then especially once it's over, they yeah. kind of just like float and then wither away. So I gave her a crown. On the day we were wed If you look like a goddess You'll feel like a goddess I said Ariadne And the years filled with joy I kind of wish everything uh, had like musical improv rules. <laughs> Like, I know that's insane because, like, obviously, like, musicals that you make up aren't as good as musicals that you write, duh. But, like, I, I kind of wish there were some rules that were just, like, hey, um, we have 40 minutes for the whole thing. So, like, yeah. we got to say what we mean to say real quick up top, and then we got to move on. Yeah. Well, that's sort of, like, I don't know. It, I've talked about it before. Having boundaries really helps you, creatively speaking, when it's, like, you have to make this happen in this song and like only this song you can't do something else and like this has to be what it's about and you have all these like other limitations it it helps your creative juices of like of how you go about writing something when it's just carte blanche blank check it's like what the fuck am I supposed to do with that and Rachel Bloom talks about all about all the time with uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She was like, the moment we were on the CW, it ended up being such a blessing because we had to figure out a way to get all the jokes we were going to do on Showtime past the censors on CW. And it made them much more creative. But yeah, like with the Frogs, because Nathan Lane basically was like, we need these songs, but like, do what you want. Like, you're Sondheim, I'm Nathan Lane. This is Lincoln Center. They're going to let us do whatever we want. It's like, you can sort of hear, it's like, oh no, I guess, blah, 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 there you go. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, good enough. And the, the truth is, it's good enough. It like completely and totally is exactly good enough. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a score with some, some bops. Uh, it's not too long. The There are some really good jokes. There are some serious moments that don't land. You leave completely and totally unoffended that you spent your time there. The end. What makes me angry is the song for the boatman, whose name is, I believe, Karen. Yes, Karen. C-H-A-R-O-N. And, oh God, if that show came out today, the jokes Wouldn't they would be, make about and it, We'd have so many more jokes. But honestly, they'd be better. I don't know. Okay, can I say, though, I actually laughed, like, really, really actually laughed at Get Your Kicks on the River Sticks. I like that. My personal favorite, so he, so Karen has an intro song, which is then repeated in Act 2, called All Aboard, and it is the longest. It's so slowest, long. It's so and long. And it's so slow. And, <sighs> and what I, I don't so know long. if, like, 
I don't. And, the jo- and also, there's not a joke in it being long. Like, it's no. not like a, oh, is he done talking? Oh, he's still talking. Like, there's just no joke. The, the boat just slowly approaches and he sings the entirety of the song. So slowly. And I don't know if, like, the song was written and then Strowman was like, how do I make this work for this long ass song? Oh, I'll have the boat descend from the flies over three minutes. Or if Strowman was like, I really want a song for the boatman. And I think what I want to do is have the boat come down from the flies, but it's going to take a minute. Can you write a song? That's that- three and a half minutes. Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes like, yeah, sure. Fine. Whatever. It's just one of those songs. Where, like it's so unnecessary. It's so long. It's so long. The other line I like where he says, um, basically it's him being like, get on the boat as long as you're dead. Like that's the gist of the song is this is a boat for dead people. So get on board if you're dead. And one of the lines he has is no delay as long as you're DOA. I think that's fun. There are some, I mean, like we're talking about Sondheim here. So it's like, are we ever going to say that anything that's in this show is like pinnacle of his career? Probably not. But like, that doesn't mean it's like a complete and total bust. I'm going to see if I wrote down any other lines that I liked. Because I I did write down, get your kicks on the river stick. (laughs) The reason why I feel like the show is kind of a bust is just because it is, for me, it is sort of just such a nothing show. It's not offensively bad, but there's very little about it that's so good. And because I like the opening song so much, everything that sort of follows suit is such a disappointment to me. I only write down any more lyrics, but I did write down one thing in act two, which is when, They've changed identities a couple times. Yeah. And so now Xanthius is dressed as uh, Heracles, a.k.a. Dionysus is Heracles, and Dionysus the god is dressed as the slave Xanthius. And uh, Heracles is getting all this attention because he's like a hero. So like mm-hmm. Xanthius the slave, Roger Bart is like being like, oh, look at all these people like paying attention to me. And Hades himself is like, uh, you know, laying on all this attention, all this praise and stuff. And Dionysus gets kind of jealous and is like, and I am Xanthius. And the guy who goes, Hades, who plays Hades goes, that means nothing to me. I really <laughs> enjoyed that. <laughs> I also love Pluto's the one who is like, that's clear. Neither of these are clearly Heracles. Um, but he, the way he says like how Dionysus can't be Heracles, like Heracles is this big, strong, masculine thing. That's so clearly not you. And Dyn- uh, Nathan Lane as Dionysus is basically just like, well, fuck my drag. Um, yeah, well, fuck my drag, right? Yeah, yeah. I the mean, joke. It's all, it's all silly, but it's like I don't, I don't no. mind silly at all. I don't mind silly either, but it is one of those things where like it just kind of needs to get tightened up a bit because the joke with them constantly switching places as Heracles. So again, like Heracles, Dionysus, his half brother, had been to Hades before, and you know did what he needed to do, and like one of the. Th- big things he did was he killed the three-headed dog yes cerberus the three-headed dog he killed michael cerberus he killed michael cerberus it was serious james woods killed michael cerberus serious it's so guys it was super serious but so uh when they're down there and dionysus is in the heracles getup basically what happens is every time that dionysus is in the getup someone who's pissed off at heracles is like fuck you for you have a lot of gall coming back down here after what you did and all your stuff and Dionysus is like okay we're switching robes like I'm giving you the Heracles stuff and then anytime Xanthius puts it on some like beautiful woman comes out she's like oh my god Heracles there you are come join me we're gonna yeah I'm naked right now I got seven naked girls with huge heaving titties and they're all waiting for you (laughs) (laughs) we're all we're all good to go Heracles come join us and Dionysus is like okay so we're switching and then as soon as they put it back on someone else comes out and like Heracles you got a lot of gall actually one of the true scene stealers of the show is this woman who plays some Amazon whose yeah. name evades me, but the, the actress's name is Pia Glenn. And she's 
so funny. She comes on, she just like does a monologue. She exits like up a ladder. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. It's like a great example of somebody who was like, yeah, I got this. Four lines. Oh, don't worry. Mm-mm. This Honey will be real for me, baby. I'm and- going to get exit applause and she does get exit applause yes she does. she does and she's great she was a staff writer on uh jordan klepper's show the opposition for its one season that it ran and you can tell because she makes some bold writer choices yeah she rewrote the whole show in that yeah. moment it's great though but yeah i like uh if the show was more forum it would be a better show yes. which is obviously a very silly thing to say because like forum already exists so you can't just like do forum again so like i am i understand that as a piece of criticism that means essentially nothing but like those moments where they're trading back and forth and how it pays out and oh i shouldn't have done this but uh-huh. it's too late now because i've already set in motion that this person's gonna arrive here at three and i need the gold coin and this person that like that's the fun shit yeah well so forum the first act of forum is all basically just set up uh, and it's it, it's actually the opposite problem of the of the frogs. Whereas forum, the first act is literally an hour and a half, and, then and the act, second act is about forty minutes. Yeah, so maybe even less. I remember when Patrick Sulkin came out to talk about forum, and I was because I never actually watched a full production of it before, and I was watching it for research, and I texted him. I was like, it's very brave that like seventy five percent of the show is just act one. Yeah. Um, also, when I was talking about t- talking to Patrick about him having recorded the forum episode with you. I remembered that when I did form at the Weston Playhouse, I was one of the Gemini and I was, wait for it, bad. Um, <laughs> so bad. Um, but, you know, I, I did other shows that season, so I like had to get shoved into that one somewhere. Mm. Um, the guy who played Erroneous, is he the like super old one? Yeah, Aron- he's the one whose house he's like never at. And the yeah, name and- because he's Erroneous. And he keeps being think? like five more times. He's supposed to go around this things like seven times. Yeah. He, he was played by this old man, like a man definitely in his 70s, if not his 80s. And every single time before we started act two, because it was so short, he'd go, I could drop acid and it wouldn't even kick in until the show was done. So, and he said it so much that I was like, do you want to drop acid? Like, are you, you telling, try are you telling me you're going to do it? Because if you're going to do it, just do it. Like, I support you. I think if it kicks in in the last number, that'll be funny. You should go for it. Like, he's like, I the, the high wouldn't even start until the show came down if I took acid at intermission. I'd like, you told me this. <laughs> Allie, I love it. I think you should have done it. Allie, I think he just forgot that he told you and forgot I that it was you. I think he wanted to say it. I think he was excited about the prospect of doing acid with the entire cast of a fighting half on the way to the forum. I, yeah, I think he was hoping that he would say it enough times and eventually you would be like, well, guess what? Yeah, guess what I brought today? Mm-hmm. And we're going to do it. <laughs> and we're all going to take a tab. And yeah. it won't even kick in until act two is over. But to go back to forum and frogs for a second, you you brought it up and it's very true. Like forum is a show where like it all is set up. So that way the, when it, when all the shit hits the fan, like we've put in all the work, we know all the things that are being done and who's who and what needs to be accomplished. So we see all the obstacles and we have fun watching it. And the setup is still very fun. It's like not, it doesn't drag out. Like there are enough plot points that are coming in in act one that the hour and a half doesn't feel like an hour and a half. Like a lot of stuff's going down. Frogs is the opposite where it's like, here's our setup. It's 40 minutes. So like, cause there's not a lot to be set up. It's just, we got this guy, we got this guy and this thing and this thing. And then act two is so long and there's no real payout for any of it. There's some mix-ups that happen, but like within like after five minutes of mistaken identities, Pluto comes in, he's like, you're not Heracles. And it's like, okay, that plot point's over. And there's also no like, what's going to happen if they don't get Shaw to come back to Earth? Yeah. There's no like, 
the earth is going to blow up. Well, and, they and there's, even and have, there's also this. Sorry, this makes me really mad. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but I have no, th- go. I have thoughts to say because I bring it up all the time. Paddington Two is such a wonderful. Time to is a perfect movie. It's perfect movie, perfect screenplay, where they have all these things that are set up and they all come into play in the end. They set up at the beginning of Act Two, once they show up at Hades, here's the pamphlet of like, oh, you have to leave after 24, before 24 hours is up, otherwise all hell breaks loose. And they don't do anything about it. They don't do anything. They don't even talk, they're not even like, quick, 10 minutes, like, and nothing what? happens. Time's running out, like all these things. Um, cause That's why every show should be a musical improv show. <laughs> absolutely. Because like, they never reach the the time frame. They never go over the time frame. So hell never does break loose. They're never like, I don't have a lot of time to explain myself. You just got to come up and do it. There's and like, also like a, a kind of a thing that's set up in act one that like Dionysus is like, after all, I'm a God. And Xanthius keeps being like, you're a half God. Yeah. And there's like kind of an implication that he doesn't get as much respect as his like full God cousins who live on Mount Olympus. But there's not like a, a an adjacent like, Kind of like how Free is like such a good I want song for Forum, which is a show without I wants. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it sets up stakes. So you're like, this is my protagonist. He wants to be free. This song's, this song's a banger and it slaps. And I, as the audience member after watching the song, want him to accomplish what he accomplished because I want him to be free. Like, there's no like Dionysus, like once I get Bernard Shaw back, I'll get to be partying with the gods. <laughs> I'll be respected. People will- Yeah, there's like no, there's no like- want in it besides this like grand sort of like well humanity needs it but it's like we all know uh, for writing you can't ever make somebody's justification for doing something like it'll be better for humanity it's like it always has to be a personal want and there's like very little personal want in the show except for like you kind of think maybe something about his ex-lover Ariadne who died who was immortal and he does run into her in act two but she just kind of like whispers in his ear and he's like thank you sweetheart yeah he gets closure with her but like it's even it's not even uh it's not there's no there's no stakes yeah you don't don't feel anything yeah because you don't find out about her until towards the end of act one when they're in the boat and he sings the song and then she's never brought up again until act until halfway through act two further than halfway through act two like they and don't there's not even again. like a moment of him being like what if i wanted to stay and be with ariadne and then xanthius being like you can't stay all hell will like break loose haven't yeah. you heard we're mortals in hades actually like, none of that comes together xanthius fucking stays in hades at the end of the show and no one's like you can't do that wait are you serious yes he's, i don't wait, even remember that nathan lane tells roger bart he's like time to go and roger bart's like actually i just got my brain railed by seven ladies with huge tits <laughs> yeah, it's like, i just got fucked by seven different women who want more um down I don't here remember i remember him staying down I here totally i'm not believe a slave you. yeah he, he like he, they say goodbye at the dock and and nathan lane goes back up to with shakespeare and then on top of that what's interesting is like shaw I don't think so. it would it would be an interesting obstacle of like he gets to shaw and shaw's like i don't want to go back up to earth it's, yeah i don't like it there yeah, he's basically like, oh, sure, fine, whatever. And then, like, Shakespeare comes in, and Shakespeare is the one who's like, I don't want to go up to go back up to Earth. And, and Dionysus is like, great, I don't want to take you anyway. Yeah, and, I know. And then he does, and after all, it's all very... Yeah, it's very, it's, it's more, and it's very episodic, but the episodicness doesn't have any kind, as you said, it has no stakes, doesn't build to anything. It's just there. And on top of that, with the Sondheim stuff, you, so, okay, so Pluto's song, Hades, which is meant to be very, like, jazz lounge singer, like, oh, it's, it's all wonderful down here because, like, you think it's hell on, uh, you think that it's, um, 
you know, all torture, but actually it's Bobby Darren at the Copa. And he yes. sings this song that's supposed to be like that. And you can kind of hear the seed of that in the music, but Sondheim being Sondheim at this point of his career, he can't physically bring himself to make it a fully thought out melody. It's like the melody begins and you're like, oh, here's something that's really nice. And then he does something weird with it. And you're like, but that just doesn't fit. You know what I mean? Yeah. It has a weird bridge and a really catchy chorus, so to speak. Yeah. But even the chorus, I think, is only like 60% catchy because every, because every like third line, there's something that's thrown in there. You're like, well, now it just seems like you added nine more words to the phrase when they don't fit in there and you added music to make it fit. It has that Sondheim thing, which can be amazing, which is like line, line, line of a very, very, very different length line. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, it's like, I live in Hades. And then like the third line will be like, and it's like, oh, that's that Sondheim syncopation. And it's so witty. And like, it does work in other songs. Like I'm not being like, haha, there's Sondheim doing his dumb shit that he always do. It's like, obviously really good but it's just like not to the best of its ability in that sure although i do think the song is like the highlight of act two it's very much the highlight of act two which well act two weirdly is also kind of ballad heavy um yeah this and shaw are as far as i'm aware like really the only up tempos because even like the him uh hymnist to Dionysus that the ensemble sings like the big orgy thing which has this beautiful melody to it and like a good dance break it's long and like it's also very um ethereal it's not like a bop you know yeah there is a section in the middle that kind of sounds TikTok-y from company Mm -hmm. and that kind of is a bop but the rest of it is sort of like well TikTok is just someone is waiting Okay. Da, 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 da. No, you're Sorry. not wrong. I, well, I only, Allie, I only know this because I literally have listened just did to that so episode. I literally just listened to So Much Company a week or two ago. So it's all still in my brain, which yeah. is why it's interesting that, like, as I've done this out of order, it's been very fascinating to listen to all the music. And especially because, in true Sondheim fashion, I actually recorded this series in a great way when you think about it because of his last three quote unquote new musicals. The Frogs is technically the second to last new Sondheim score, but half of it was written 30 years prior, like before Pacific Overtures, before Sweeney. And same as like how Saturday Night came out in 2000, but it was actually written before West Side Story. But in a weird way, Saturday Night, The Frogs, and then Roadshow all are kind of similar in a way, where it's like these songs that are like almost songs, but they're not quite songs with lyrics that are awesome. Like these really well thought out and genuinely witty lyrics and then music where it's like I kind of like it there's a moment here that I really enjoy but then it doesn't connect to this way whereas something like Sweeney or Night Music or even um, Passion if there may not always be a moment that I like but it connects to something else in a way that I'm like oh I see what you did there and that's awesome completely I when I um, talk to people who aren't like theater nerds the way that we are maybe even theater enthusiasts but not like straight up just like shoot us in the head nerds like mm-hmm. like shut up stop talking nerds yeah. when i try to explain why i don't think many uh contemporary musicals are actually musicals they're just like plays with music mm-hmm. they're like explain to me what you mean because i'm like okay doesn't mean that they're not good songs like i'm not saying that like this is a piece of shit garbage nobody should ever see this again i'm just saying it's not a musical because mm-hmm. a musical has motif it has foreshadowing in the music the music is there to serve the text the text is there to serve the music 
there are lyrical echoes and musical echoes and that's why it's a musical and not a series of songs because like you write a score to like a score is a complete score um and like Sweeney Todd is like a perfect example of that Mm. because there's like there's foreshadowing in the underscoring that shows you that the baker the baker's wife kill me that the beggar woman is is you know lucy is his wife uh at the beginning of the show and like you don't know it when you're watching it the first time through which is genius Mm -hmm. but it's all there like that is like that is a true blue musical and there's like lyrical foreshadowing and things that change and there's the three different joannas that span this isn't the sondheim this isn't the episode i've been hired to talk about hired because you're paying me by the way um paying you in compliments (laughs) but basically like like the frogs is is a Sondheim musical that is not truly a musical. It is like a Sondheim show with a pretty good score and a funny book, but it does not have the benchmarks of like the capital S, capital M Sondheim musical. Yeah, and before anyone comes for me, like Sondheim himself has no real opinions about the show. He's like, I did it in the 70s. It was for a lark. And, you know, it was, I look back and I'm like, it, it was pretty decent for what it was supposed to be. And then I was asked to like make it more of a musical musical later on. And my heart wasn't really in it. And he even says like, he sometimes only as good as his collaborators, right? Like the people he works with and the stories that um, interest him. And the frogs was something that he has essentially was hired to do. He did it as a favor uh, in the 70s. And then he did it again in 2004 for Nathan Lane, but he doesn't even discuss Nathan Lane as a collaborator. He's like, I did it for a star, uh, which tells you sort of how he felt about the writing process for the new version. He was like, for sure. He was like, these are all star demands. Uh, rather than like a book writer being like, hey, we need a song for this character for X, Y, and Z. Correct. Um, so and also like I don't think it's offensive necessarily to say that like Nathan Lane is a star performer who might uh-huh. be a great joke writer and like is not the best spec book writer in the entire universe. Like I don't think that's like totally. an unfair criticism. No, but I but it tells you sort of where Sondheim's mind was at when this collaboration quote unquote was happening, where like he didn't think of it as, oh, Nathan, this performer who I've worked with, who I like, and blah blah blah, and is very smart. And I don't know, maybe he could come up with a good book. George Firth was an actor before he started writing scripts. So he, but it's no, he views it much more as like, oh, this was a star demand for a star show. And I think Nathan Lane truly wanted to make this a fully fleshed out musical. And that just wasn't in the cards. Uh, there was one last thing I was going to say. And then we were so, I was so rudely interrupted by you with your thoughts. With my thoughts about musicals. Oh, no, not the frogs, but I mentioned it on the Sweeney Todd episode. Do you remember when I ran to you the day that I realized that the music that the beggar woman sings when she has her split personalities is the same music as the like uh, dance music in Poor Thing? Yes. You remember that day? Yes, I like 100%. Because like that is like why the musical is a musical and yeah. not like a series of songs with a book that connects it. I discussed it on the, on the Sweeney Todd episode, which for if you haven't listened to it yet, go back and listen to it. I do remember that moment with you because it was at Stage Door and I, I was like, I don't know what was going on in my head. I would think I was just sort of thinking it through and I was going to the da, 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 da. And I remember jumping up and running across the dining hall to you. And I was like, Allie, Allie, the music in poor thing. When, when, when Lucy goes to the party, that music, that minuet or whatever the fuck it is, that's the Becker Roman, Becker Roman's music when she's having, having her split personality. And you're like, I know, isn't it awesome? And on top of that, I was like, oh, that's how I should react whenever somebody realizes something that I already know. Never oh be God, like, so funny. Never be like, oh, you didn't know that. You were like, I yeah, thought you were going to say, that's how I should react when I, when somebody says something that I didn't know, but I want to seem smart. Just be like, yeah, I know. Right. How cool. Like, <laughs> 
No, like, I, yeah, always, I completely knew when it comes to Broadway stuff. Like I'm sure there are things you could tell me. There's not a lot. I know yeah. a lot of them. I, this is what I've spent the majority of my life looking into, not just like listening to shows, but like reading up on how they came to be and all the backstage stories, you know? Completely. Yeah. You knew so much more about the history of frogs than I did. So I appreciate that. You're very welcome. Why do we think it's called the frogs again? Because people are frogs? Because people are frogs. Because Aristophanes wrote a thing called the frogs and that was, so he he wrote it in stone quite literally. Yeah. Literally when I was watching it, because he talks about the Dionysus. He's like, I don't like frogs. It's very Indiana Jones and why did it have to be snakes? Completely. He's like, I don't like frogs. But then, and then like they go down the river and there's like a whole frog ballet where the frogs try to capture him, but he's able to get back in the boat. And that's technically speaking why it's called the frogs. It's, I don't know. It's calling the social network Rooney Mara. Because she has right. that one scene. And like, it's a good scene. Yeah, but you're like, she's scene. good in that scene. Yeah, no, it's very like, they don't even like talk about the frogs again, really, after. Because like, I kind of think it would even be thematically better if like, somebody like Shaw was like, what's the point of going? What's the point of going back to Earth when like, seems nowadays everybody's frogs. You know what yeah. I mean? I don't know. That was really bad. So please don't take Fro- it as no, like, no, but like frogs- amazing writing, but like they don't even bring it back to be like frogs are people who resist change and yeah. are happy with the status quo and they kind of like fuck you to yeah, you try they not mention, They ideas. mention it for a second, but it's again, it's very it's very tossed off where he's like, you know, people, uh, it's like, because you know, the frogs are just so complacent. And I'm like, you haven't explicitly stated who the frogs are. Like it took me re-watching that scene three times to go, Oh, you mean like the people, right? You mean the people are complacent. Exactly. And it's like, and again, like they don't make a statement on like, are the frogs, are the frogs everybody? Like, is the point like, hey, even you're a frog. Like you might think that you are, your mind is expanded. You are so woke. You are, you're like sitting here in your liberal elite city watching a show at Lincoln Center Theater, the -hmm. gayest place in the world. And even you are complacent when it comes to a lot of things. Like you might not think it of yourself, but you can be a frog too. That's like not even the point. You know what I mean? Lincoln Center, the real estate equivalent of a popper. <laughs> I mean, when you've when you've like done how many revivals of anything goes there? At a certain point, you have to just like call it a gay landmark. When you've gone through the entire Rogers and Hammerstein canon, and like you just gotta you just gotta throw in the towel, and you become like the the housing space for John Guar plays. Like you know exactly who you are. Completely. Um. Yeah. So we'll wrap it up. Uh. So the frogs opens July twenty. 20- second of 2004 there's some backstage drama because roger bart was not supposed to be xanthius it was yes, originally in, in up to previews it was somebody else it was chris Catan of snl fame is not good in it he's not good there is a video of him doing it and he's not and it's good. not good he's not good did, was he fired or did he quit or did he, he was, like he quit was, with parentheses around it he was fired he was let go um it was originally stated that he was let go because the, his performance just wasn't working out which when you watch the video like Yes, he is not good, but it's not like a disastrous performance. You're just yeah, like yeah. you're like you're out of your element. Like you're you're doing everything technically speaking that's required of you, but like you're not owning the stage. You're not really enjoying yourself. You're kind of just like it's still very much okay. And I have to move here now because if I move here, then the turntable moves now, and my note comes up here. Right. Um, not someone who's like lived in theater and and it's much more second nature. There was then a blind item the next day that basically said like he was more interested doing lines in his dressing room than learning his lines on stage. Ooh, 
I did not know this drama. I mean, I'm not confirming nor denying I was not backstage when it was happening, but that was what the blind item stated. Uh-huh. Uh, and there was no press statement from the from the production that was like, that is not true. They just never addressed it. Yeah, so which is probably have... like the fairest thing to do is just, just be like, la, 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 la. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. Um, not prolong it. But yes, Roger Bart came in literally like the last week or two of previews and had to learn the show in like three days. And uh, I think was doing it for maybe eight performances when critics finally came. So they're like, we're judging your performance after only doing it eight times. And that's wild. I mean, he's really good. Like, he is. I also am a big fan. I like think he has some of those idiosyncratic, like syncretic things that like, I'm sure some people find like nails on a chalkboard, but for mm-hmm. me, they don't like, for me, I like the taste of this sirloin after the cake. You know what I mean? Like, sure. I, I think he's really funny. And I think he is like exactly the right person for this role, which is like a nothing role on paper. Uh, and he has like a couple little moments that he just makes a meal. Yeah. Like, what else can you possibly ask for? Yeah. Well, he and Nathan Lane make a good team and they are, they're actually very similar types because they are very specific comedic actors where I wouldn't necessarily call them chameleons. They bring a lot of themselves to each role and they make it work because they are talented and very intelligent, but they also have certain like, trademark ways of saying a punchline to make it funny yes. so like Nathan Lane likes I, to use I also think they did do the producers together as Bialystok and Bloom briefly maybe yeah, I, I think know that Nathan he... Lane stayed in the show for longer or maybe came back to the show when Roger Bard had been moved from one role to the other yeah Roger Bard I know did uh Leo Bloom for a while and Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick came back to do the show and maybe at one point Roger Bard did it as I, well. I weirdly think I have a playbill that has the two of them on the front. And I that would have been look, pretty good. I will look for that for you. I mean, he's still one of my favorite comedic performances is Carmen Ghia. It's one Incredible. of those things where it's like, it is, it's offensively stereotypical and I laugh the entire time. Yeah. Also the, the, the line reading of, if your intention was to shoot a, an arrow through my heart, bullseye, bullseye is like yeah. one of the funniest. It's music. You it's, can like you can hear it in your head. It's perfect. Yeah. He is he's got an he's got an innate rhythm in his self that knows how to make a punchline work. But like you know how you know what I mean? Nathan Lane does that really like as exasperated whisper thing sometimes yes. to get a punchline. Yes. He goes, I've done it all this way. Like you know, and then Roger Bart likes to kind of do a talk, 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 shout talk yes. kind of thing. But it's good. They work together well. Yeah. And they they to their credit, they use it very intelligently so even if you know like that's part of their bag of tricks like you can't ever fault them for using it because they use it at the right time completely and they still find time to surprise you with it also yes this production also while watching it is very interesting it's very early 2000s for me of it's very stroman at this time we're like very bright colors very clean sets and very precise choreography that's like very pleasant and professional but also i don't know like it's just there was a time on broadway where like a lot of sets were very kind of like bright candy color hued. You yeah. know what I mean? Like this is this is the same season as Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and um, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And I think Never Gonna Dance was around the same time. I saw both of those shows. And I also saw, um, when I saw Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, this is all just stories about me as a 14 year old in New York City. I saw Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with my cousin Rebecca. We were by, our, my, by myself for the first time. Hey, Rebecca. Um, we were sitting and we were the two off the aisle. So there was mm-hmm. one seat on the aisle. And we were like, this person's late. Like, should we move over? It'd be so cool. Oh my God. If, the, if, if when the lights go down, somebody still hasn't moved here, let's move over one. And then as the lights went down, Liza Minnelli walked down the aisle and sat down in the empty seat. And I sat next to Liza Minnelli. The end. That's a wonderful story. You know, who would, you know who would have done a good do- job with the show? Speaking of Dirty Round Scoundrels, John Lithgow and Norbert Leo Butts. I 100%. Seen, 
they could do a good job with the show um yeah i know you're gonna ask me about casts and i feel like yeah. i i have like some uh, weird opinions about that yeah um the only real legacy the show has is the opening number is still used a lot in a lot of reviews in fact the first time i ever came to know the frogs or at least anything regarding the frogs was the carol burnett putting it together because introduction and instructions to the oh, was invocation and instructions to the audience was used as the opening for yep. putting it together uh and then i just did not know anything about the frogs for years and years and years. Uh, and then on top of that, I guess you could say like, you know, Lysistrata Jones, another musical update of a of a Aristophanes play done on Broadway. But like Lysistrata had been done as a Broadway musical in the 50s as well. It was called uh, The Happiest Girl in the World. And I don't think that the frogs can really be taking any yeah, credit for it. I agree. But, you know, if you want to just like, so there's something to say. Yeah. Listen, we'll say it right here right now. There wouldn't be any Lysistrata Jones if it wasn't for the frogs. That's a bold statement. And I wish I wish we could like stand by that so wholeheartedly. Mm, Patty to me, the, leg- the legacy for me of the frogs is that I met Nathan Lane as a 14-year-old and I was like really stoked. The legacy of the frogs is that Barrett Wilbert Weed made her Broadway debut because of the frogs. That's wild. Because she was in, she was a swing in Lysistrata Jones. So all you 14-year-olds... All of, you Heathers, yeah. all of you Heathers fans, all of you Mean Girls fans who just can't live without her Janice and her Veronica, you have the frogs to thank for that. You better get down on your hands and knees and say, thank you, Roger Bart. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it just turned sexual. I it that way. Okay, so rapid fire questions, Ali, as we wrap this up, because she's got things to do. Wow. The Sondheim rhyme. What is your favorite lyric in this show? Get your kicks on the river sticks. I love it. Mine is, please don't fart. There's very little air and this is art. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Although I do also really like um, in, God, was it? What is it? Uh, the, oh, the hymn to uh, Dionysus when the Dionysians are like, uh, we drink so we can understand the world. And when you understand the world, you need more wine. Yeah, that's a like good that. line too. Yeah. But also, honestly, I think maybe the best line in the frogs because it has like, the one that everybody likes the most is those who look down on actors and who doesn't. Yeah, that's a that's great one. Probably the best line. It's wonderful. And it helps knock actors down a peg. The actors and are like, we all need it. We all need it. When we post on Instagram of our buttholes and we're like, today was a very brave <laughs> day for me. And I'm going to talk about my mental health. And then you show your hole. It's like, you get need to get knocked down a peg. Okay, next up. God, that's good. Where does this show rank for you in the Sondheim canon? Pretty, pretty low, unfortunately, yeah. but that's okay. Um, I think it's like pretty much tied for me, unfortunately, with Roadshow, like at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, I had a dream cast. Who would you like to see in a production of this show? Um, I would like the show to be redone, to be a, maybe a little less ballad heavy. Mm-hmm. And then I want to see it just done crazy. I want to see like Kathy Griffin as Dionysus. I want to see like a true blue female comedian. Ah, love it. I want something weird. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I want like, like Sandra Bernhard. Like I want something weird. Alex Borstein. Alex Borstein. Yes. Yes. That's exactly correct. Like, that's what I want to see. I want them to take a little bit of the self-seriousness out Mm -hmm. that I think Nathan Lane wanted to do because he's an actor Mm -hmm. with a capital A. So like, no, I'm not trying to like cast shade. I just think that he was like, I want a serious ballad. And they're like, okay, whatever. I want somebody who has no interest in that to take those things out. And I want it to be like Alex Borstein. Love it. I love it so much. Uh, Which brings us to our next question. It's the little things, AKA there won't be trumpets, uh, which do you get why I made it this title for this section? 
It's the little things, AKA there won't be trumpets. For this, this is how you, how you downsize the Sondheim show. Oh yeah. Because they're, because it's little things like a small set or like trumpets, yeah. like, like uh, what's his name? John there won't, or there won't be trumpets in the orchestra because you have to downsize. Right. Yeah. I like that. I've had to explain that to every single person. They're like, why is that the title for that section? I'm like, I'm funny and interesting. How would I you- I like d- it. Thank you. How would you downsize uh, this Sondheim show? Wacky answers accepted. Um, uh, I mean, obviously I don't think a swimming pool is necessary Mm-mm. to its for, understanding. For a seven minute scene in the show. Correct. I feel like there could be somebody who's a good director, who's not me, who could like find a weird setting for this to like modernize it that isn't just like kind of ancient Greece, but kind of not. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mm-hmm. feel like this could potentially like be set someplace weird, like a John Doyle type thing where it's like, it actually takes place like, uh, like outside like a comedy club. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, or in a or comedy like, club. Yeah, exactly. It's, I'm saying like, we're like, where you're traveling someplace and it's like not quite so literal. Like we're like literally on the river, river sticks. It's like, we're going around Manhattan and trying to find some like weird basement community where we're going to pull like a weird artist out of the, of the- um... Oh, interesting. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so like, literally like a traveling show. Yeah, exactly. Where it's like the conceit is that we're actually like, <laughs> like in Manhattan trying to find some like weird- um artist subculture to find like the next great artist who's going to speak to our cultural standpoint mm-hmm. so we're like we're like we go down to the village and we go to like uh baby wants candy well, it's not baby wants candy that's insane that's musical improv <laughs> too much light makes the baby go blind is that what it's called <laughs> i don't know you know what i'm talking about new neo futurists maybe i don't know i'm I, not as that, cultured as you are well i embarrass myself by saying the name of a musical improv team first what? essentially that where it's like trying to find like who the next great artist will be that's going to like save us. Yeah. Um, okay. I would do, I first of all would cut half of the ballads. Yeah. Or half of the show. Half the make show. Make it a one ha- act. Cut, cut, yeah. Make it a one act cut. I would basically, I would go, I would revert to the 90 minute version and like maybe I, to please you, I put in the newer version of I Love to Travel. Thank you. Um, you're <laughs> welcome. And I put in Hades and I would, you know, do a little tweaking. And then I'd also do some like double casting for some reason in this production, like everyone plays their own role. I'm like, have the actor playing Heracles double as uh, Shakespeare. Have like yeah, or Hades or any of those things. Yeah, yeah. like come on, bitch. Like eight person cast. Let's do it. Um, and also, don't make the frogs a ten minute ballet. It's unnecessary. Uh, doesn't need to be there. Agreed. Uh, so, Allie, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you. I hope that this episode was interesting to people. I don't know if it'll be. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I guess if like there's somebody out there who's like a Sondheim purist who just like is like, no one ever talks about the frogs. Yeah. People will be interested in that. Or like, I want to learn about the frogs. What do you have to say about it? Turns out yeah. I don't have I don't have an awful I don't have lot. A lot to say. I don't like it very much. I mean, uh, I do think it it certainly speaks to Sondheim's like credit that like the worst thing you can say about his canon of musical theater is like this show is not great it's forgettable yeah like do you know what I mean like no there's not like he doesn't he didn't write stinkers this is not like a offensive show or a badly aged show or like a show where you're like what the fuck were you thinking when you did this it's just like not great no it's just not great uh it is some of the the earlier stuff is some of the more fun some of the most fun that he has written in his career where he's just like oh i got to sort of be like a fun little kid i will say though if you want a better thought through score where you can hear sondheim really just like having fun and being childlike listen to his lyrics to the 1974 candide yeah uh, his lyrics i think make up probably like 40 percent of the score in that one but like 
don't know. It's just really fun. And he like makes jokes about pimples and, and sex with sheep, which is, which they even make a joke about that. I'm pretty sure in this version when he's like, come back to earth where the sheep are nervous. There's like men are men and sheep are nervous. <laughs> I'm like, oh, did he make a joke about men fucking sheep? I think so. Very fun. Um, so guys, stay tuned for next week where we close out the Sondheim canon with his final show road show formerly bounce formerly wise guys and in that episode you will hear me announce the next artist that is lined up for this series and you also i know very exciting and on top of that you will hear me go through the entire canon and tell you certainly where each show sits for me personally in the canon having gone through all of them uh, at this time i ask all my guests where the show is for them but now you're going to hear me rank them all personally speaking Cool. Do you think yes. we should call Donna Murphy and say we loved her in fashion and have her laugh at us and then go, oh, you're serious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call Donna Murphy and I'm going to go, I saw you in love music. I saw it. And I loved you in passion. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, she was good in love music. That just wasn't a good show. Anywho, um, thank you so much for listening, guys. If you like the podcast, rate, review, subscribe, share it with your friends. Uh, Allie, where can people find you on social media? Uh, you can find me basically anywhere that social media exists under the handle Miss Alice Nutting, M-S-A-L-I-C-E, N-U-T-T-I-N-G. Did I make that right after my summer at Stage for Manor where I did Drood? 100% I did, baby. Yeah, she still lives in the past, honey. Um, not I, <laughs> though. She, I, I truly am, though. I'm like, look at me. I was 17. Look how healthy my voice sounds. <laughs> and bitch, it did sound healthy. She did. I don't ever talk about how I just ruined the game for all stage Dorians when I did Batboy. I don't talk about it at all. <laughs> um, and I'm devastated that nobody talks about it, I think, because it's erasure. Uh, that's why. You're just scared. They're scared to talk about Batboy at stage for Manor. Yeah. They're like, oh, my God, the 08 Batboy? Oh, we don't talk about it. We don't talk like- about that. We opinions are it. too great people will die <laughs> literally uh you can find me on instagram if you want to see more of my amazing videos at matt Coplick, usual spelling i'm trying to think of a diva to close this out with with the frogs there aren't really any female performers who are associated with the show which is get- why in my dream revival it's gonna be all women baby all women we love to see it i think what i'm gonna do because she technically did do it and we haven't done her yet and she's not really broadway but she's Broadway adjacent we're gonna close out today's diva with miss meryl streep love it yes hit me with that song they wrote for the into the woods movie (laughs) she'll be back (laughs) she'll be back she'll be back no we're gonna i think we're gonna do prom because that's meryl at her most open-throated One million percent. Yeah. All right. So thank you so much for listening, guys. Check us out for Roadshow. Once again, the final episode, you will hear who the next series is going to be on. And on top of that, my final rankings personally of all the Sondheim shows. Uh, Take us away, Meryl. Thank you so much. Bye.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.